Hey everyone, this is Duncan from DER Task Force. Back in November, we threw Dervos, our annual distributed energy summit. It turned out awesome. We really couldn't be happier or more grateful for how it went. The panels and speakers were great, the crowd that turned up was amazing, and the vehicle to rave after party was super fun. Because the talks and panels went so well, we've decided to release the recordings on the podcast for paying subscribers. If you haven't subscribed yet, you'll be able to first listen to a preview and see if it's something you're interested in. Subscriptions are one of the main ways we make DER Task Force work financially, so if you like what we do, please consider helping out. They're just five bucks a month. This recording is from the first panel of the day, titled Central Planning, Public Power, and DERs. It raises the question of whether the grid and DERs might actually be best served by central planning and potentially even public ownership. It was hosted by Lee Harris, a New York-based journalist at the American Prospect. Panelists included Paul Dockery from the Public Power Underground podcast and, and Seattle City Light, Pierre Lafarge, the CEO and co-founder of Spark Fund, Matt Huber, a professor at Syracuse University, and Cyril Brunner, the innovation and technology leader at Vermont Electric Cooperative. Thanks. Hope you enjoy it. Hello. Um, so, so excited to be here with the four of you. And um, just before we get started, I wanted to say thank you to the organizers. I think it's a testament to their gutsiness and courage in organizing this that they are starting us off with a panel of dissenters and critics of the the co concept of DERs in the entire conference, or at least um, maybe that relies too much on the conventional wisdom of the kind of politics that um, that are supportive of DERs. But the topic of this panel um, is that solar panels and batteries uh, still bring to mind for a lot of Americans, I think, kind of rugged, off the grid, cowboy living, um, homesteading, raising chickens, definitely not um, the kinds of themes that we're discussing here, central planning and public power. Um, and I think there's often this kind of libertarian vision, um, which is an escape from price setting regulators or alternatively, like a sort of small is beautiful eco-socialist vision that goes along with uh, DERs. But if DERs seem like a natural fit with a political orientation towards decentralization and localism, um, I want to ask the panelists today if deploying them could actually require really strong institutions and better state capacity, which would fit, I think, with a lot of the sort of energy abundance themes um, that the Biden administration has been backing. So specifically, as I said, I'm interested in whether we need central planning or public ownership to deploy DERs most efficiently and reliably. Um, and to discuss that, we have... Uh, I'll just read your brief bios. Um, Paul Dockery, who um, runs energy resource strategy and planning at Seattle City Light, a municipally owned vertically integrated utility. He's also co-host of the Public, uh, Public Power Underground podcast and a believer in the mission of public power, who's thought a lot about the benefits of DER to public infrastructure. Um, Matt Huber is a Marxist geographer at Syracuse University. <laughs> he works... <laughs> he works on large-scale power projects, often nuclear, to be planned and owned by the government. But unlike many proponents of public power or municipalization, he doesn't really see investor-owned utilities as the primary enemy. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think instead, Matt's bet noir is liberalization and the creation of power markets. Um, 
Pierre Lafarge is the co-founder and CEO of SparkFund, a company that does clean energy upgrades for utilities, real estate portfolios, and other big buildings. He's not so much a public power advocate, I'm told, but he is a believer in central planning and an institutionalist. And Cyril Brunner, uh, to run a, round us out, leads innovation and technology at Vermont Electric Cooperative, where he's working, among other things, on implementing load management programs and reducing impacts from electrifying heating and rotation. Um, so more to say, but um, to get us started off, I kind of wanted to talk about the, the sort of central theme, which is institutionalist versus more multi-actor visions for deploying DERs. So DERs can help us grow the grid, but should utilities be leading the studies and pointing the way to the best solutions? Or should we favor more of an emergent solutions, market-driven approach where rates and power upgrade costs and timelines and reliability are strong signals driving customers and other non-utility entities to invest in DERs. Maybe, um, let's see, Cyril, you wanna start us off? <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I think this is a really good question. I mean, I'm sure we're gonna have plenty of different discussions. First off, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to come down from Vermont to, to Brooklyn. Nice city enjoyment here from uh, rural, snowy Vermont this morning. Um, yeah, so I, I would say um, I think the kind of centralized approach makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, speaking from like a small, you know, we have 30,000 meters on our system. We're, we're a small co-op serving a rural territory, right? So for us, we have pretty significant constraints as it relates to additional DRs on the system, in particular, like more solar. Um, and that's primarily just because we have really small lines. We're really rural um there just isn't a lot of load so therefore the system hasn't been built out to kind of support like lots of generation and so we're already seeing constraints actually in the northeast part of our territory where we have like over 200 megawatts of generation and only like 50 megawatts of load right so you don't have to be a physics expert but there's just going to be an issue when, when that sort of imbalance happens and you know we're in the early days of this energy transition we know we need more renewables we know we need more storage we know we need more uh, electrification um, so we feel like, um, in general that we're going to play a very critical role in that between leveraging, um, programs with our members and also continuing to invest in infrastructure. There's like a real happy medium there. Um, and, and we feel like both is equally important. So. Okay. <laughs> We're short a mic in case that wasn't clear. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to take for granted that everyone here believes that the grid needs more DRs, right? And the DRs have value to the grid because this industry has worked its face off for 20, 30, 40 years and DERs are now cheaper, they're better, and they have value to a grid that doesn't have the lines to double, right? So every conversation here to me, whether you centralize it, whether it's emergent, starts with the fact that we've got to double or triple the grid. That is crazy. That is like the technical challenge of the space race with the economic scale of the highway system. That is non-trivial societal shit. <laughs> so, so staying anchored in that reality, to me, this whole conversation starts from that first principle. If we've got to double this thing, can the lines handle it? They cannot. That means that we need a whole bunch of DRs, and that's good news for everyone in this room. The, the premise of this panel is what societal mechanism should be brought to bear to double the grid at the highest speed to meet climate goals and economic development at the lowest cost with the best benefit to society. And I think fundamentally, right? Also, just as a quick caveat, I'm from South Carolina. I live in a cattle farm in West Virginia. I am not a public power advocate, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, right? From a libertarian perspective, from I believe in emergent 
uh, markets. I believe that most of the time in society, when you have emergent small actor, small as beautiful decisions, you get more value for more people. I don't think this is one of those times. And I'll pause there. We'll talk more about it. But that's, you know, I think that fundamentally this is about doubling the grid and that this is a very rare, very small corner of society where centralized planning and socialized capital infrastructure models are the cheapest, fastest, and best way to get this job done. And uh, yeah. Well, actually, maybe just to follow up quickly there, I, I know we'll get into public power in a second. And I think that's one case where there are sort of real world examples to reach for. Like I want to talk about the main um, public power ballot initiative that just failed. Um, but I feel like when thinking about um, the ways to improve centralization or, or kind of some of the themes that you were just getting at, I have no idea what the policy solutions are, like what it would mean to, where sort of would I go if I were an activist who was sold on what you just described? Maybe one more quick comment before bringing these guys in. Look, the only thing slower and stupider than a utility is the government. And so if we're going to have to do some centralization, right, the, the, the good people of Maine aren't dumb enough to vote for that. <laughs> Full stop, in my view. So, sorry, guys, I'm sure that's passionately disagreed point. <laughs> but hey, Duncan invited me to be provocative. So, <laughs> so if you have a if you have a big, slow, regressive entity that's already messing up your power, and you're asked, the question is, hey, could we do this with a governmental entity? I don't think that's the right level of centralization. From a policy standpoint, we have regional, somewhat decentralized, public regulatory commissions that are imperfectly democratically accountable and appointed, who can, at an activist level, be given new policy ideas to charge utilities in their territory with new authority to plan, specify, and rate-base distributed energy resources to take maybe 30, 40, or 50% of the next 100% of the grid we need and make utilities the biggest wholesale customer to this industry in history. Think about RFPs, 100, 500 megawatts, 1,000 megawatts at a time with no cost of acquisition where your gross margin can drop to your bottom line rather than spending six to nine months selling to commercial customers or 18 months in an interconnect queue before you even ask.